This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Nobody loves Mondays. The dread, depression, and foreboding associated with Mondays are a well-trotted theme found in pop culture everywhere from the Boomtown Rats to Garfield the Cat. Monday's not just a day of the week. It's a metaphor. It evokes the transition from personal freedom and leisure to the soul-crushing drudgery of the work week ahead. But what if your job didn't involve a set schedule, office politics, or having to answer to a demanding boss? What if instead you got paid to travel the globe and surf picture-perfect waves? Our next guest grew up doing just that. If you've ever paddled out at Malibu and braved the crowds on a decent swell, nestled amongst the two or three hundred of your closest friends, you've probably seen her. She's the one casually navigating first-point set waves with the grace of a dancer and a warm saltwater smile. But after nearly two decades of being paid to travel and surf, she decided to walk away from her main sponsor in order to launch her own wetsuit company. In an ironic twist, after years of living such a coveted lifestyle, she now has to make some of the same work week time sacrifices associated with having a day job. Has Monday finally caught up with her? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this perpetually stoked queen of nose riding. Today, surfer, photographer, socially responsible business owner, and goofy-footed ambassador of positivity, Miss Cassia Metter. Finally get it together. It's so yeah, great to see you. Super good to see you too, Justin. I mean, you know, in times of quarantine, we Zoom. I uh, know. Um, I have to say, I was heartbroken that I wasn't in Rockaway for the duct tape last year. I remember you called me. I had just landed. I had a previous engagement with with family. I was actually in California for it. And I had like serious 
FOMO for missing basically the biggest weekend in Rockaway surf history, <laughs> other than yeah. Sandy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess Sandy was a pretty big weekend. And um, yeah, you know, it was a good time. And I was so bummed to miss you too, because obviously when I think about Rockaway, I think about you and just like the crew that's out there, you know, and uh, I'm happy yeah. you got to meet some. So you got to meet, you know, Liz and a lot of my crew and it's such a really special community out there. But you had a good time generally. I had an amazing time, you know, hanging out with Uncle Pat and uh, and everybody, Liz and Andrew, and and then just like the whole community out there, you know. Um, I got to stay um, with some really lovely people, uh, Jimbo and Mackenzie, and they're super rad. Oh yeah, oh, and, and that, you were uh, on like um, old Eighty Eighth Street. Yeah, it was super sweet. I mean, I don't think I've ever been besides Montauk on a dirt road in the state of New York. So it was really nice to kind of just be on a dirt road right by the taco shop and just, you know, everything was just such a sweet vibe. I remember the first time I went to that street, I was like, where are, I don't think even the post office knows about this street. (laughs) It was funny. I feel like the post office doesn't know about that street. Definitely the dude that picked us up and took us there from JFK didn't know about that street. We were like spinning circles, you know? Well, I think what what I find most interesting about Rockaway, and you you can add to this, is that even though it's kind of become this known entity of, of a surf spot, especially within New York City, but to some degree, like nationwide, like people are kind of starting to become aware that you can surf in New York City. Like despite all that, it's still like such a new surf culture. I mean, I'm, there's some crusty old heads that have been surfing there since whenever, but for the most part, uh, in terms of surf culture or any sort of actual like surf scene, like it's really 10, 15 years tops, you know? And if you contrast that with Malibu, that's like one of the most iconic surf breaks, like since the inception of surfing. I mean, if there's one break that really represents like Americana surf culture, like it's Malibu. And I know you have such a deep history there. So like paint a picture for me. Like imagine it's, it's a, it's a sunny Sunday afternoon. It's, it's gorgeous out. There's a really nice South swell running. Like what is the scene at Malibu? Like the scene at Malibu these days is bananas. If it's a Sunday afternoon, I actually, it's so funny that you say that. I almost like love going Sunday just before sundown because I feel like everybody blew themselves out during the weekend and like a sundowner on Sunday is kind of like the little like calm after the weekend. So that's my favorite time. Um, but like a Sunday afternoon, midsummer, it's bananas out there. You can't even get a parking spot. You're just driving around circling and it's really gotten crazy. It used to be when I was a kid, definitely a lot more chill. And I really think a lot of that lends to the fact that longboarding is so popular now. Um, when I was a kid, it was like Joel Tudor was just kind of like really starting to kind of raise a lot of attention around longboarding and the community and longboard magazine was having like this resurgence and people like Matt and Brittany were like surfing and doing it so cool seventies and Joel was out there and it was just when Thomas was working on his first film, you know, but I think like a lot of that kind of stuff really lended to the explosion of the surf culture. And when I was a Grom, it'd be like, you know, on a Sunday with a good South Swell, it'd be crowded, but not that bad at first point, unless it was pumping. And now it's just like, forget it. If you can find a parking spot, like consider yourself like, that's like getting a set. 
<laughs> like outside of the actual lineup, there's such a just scene there in general. Like you mentioned the parking lot. Like what's I mean, that in itself is a scene. Like what can you paint that the picture? The lot of what is that's awesome. Like? I mean, I always like maybe we could do this together, but I've been wanting to do like kind of like a spoof on heavy metal parking lot at First Point Malibu. It would be cool. Let's do it. Don't tell no one. You know, this is between us right here. But it is just really a scene, you know, especially like before like COVID and all this stuff, people would just never leave. They'd post up for the summer and then they would just be there all summer, you know, like cooking burgers on their grill or their car. You're like, does that thing even work? Or is it actually like a grill? Is that like a car or is that like something to like heat stuff up on? And just people, it's you pull up for the day and you're staying for a week. And so, I mean, obviously the lineup is, is incredibly crowded and, you know, that desire to surf Malibu has exploded, but is there, do you get a sense that there's, there's still uh, a sense of, of, of a community and reverence and, and, and respect for the history of Malibu or is it just kind of just gone bananas and people don't really understand, you know, what, you know, I think it's definitely ebbs and flows, you know, Malibu to me, it's like this living organism and you go through these different waves. You know, when I was a kid, it was like, there was the Palapa, there was a couple crew there and it was really pretty chill on the beach, especially during the weekdays. You'd get like, you know, cause it was always Malibu. It always had that iconic vibe. But then you look at photos and stuff when like Mickey Dora and like Jimmy Fain and all those guys were doing it back in the day. And it was just as crowded during the Gidget time. It like had this whole like resurgence and really surf culture and every Everybody that wanted to surf and was watching the movies, you know, in the Frankie Avalon and like that whole vibe. I mean, it was even on Batman and Robin. Joker was surfing. It was like, yeah. it also really had this resurgence and everybody was at Malibu. Nobody had a leash then and the boards were way heavier. So it was pretty bananas, you know? So yeah. I think it, it has this kind of ride. Yeah, that's what's so interesting because, I mean, you can talk about the proverbial, you know, back in the day. But like, like you said, like the true back in the day, like the 60s, like it was probably as crazy as it was today. Totally in a a a different different way. You know, I I don't think you had like all the restaurants and all like Malibu didn't have as much of a vibe, but really, um, like Malibu as like a, you know, a city, Malibu city limits didn't have as much energy moving towards it. And it was like, you know, PCH was a dirt road and all that stuff, you know, it, it paved it at one point, but people used to ride horses up and down PCH, you know? And then really though, Malibu was always like this beacon that would just call people in, you know, especially when longboarding was hype. So then when kind of the shortboard and the thrusters and all that stuff moved, I think it took a little bit of kind of like pressure off of first point. And now that like longboarding has this whole revitalizing energy towards it, you know, and has for the last like 10 or 15 years or so, you know, um, what do you think? Well, what's the biggest change you've noticed? Like since you started surfing there, you know, um, I think like some of the biggest changes, a, where the lifeguard tower is now right by, um, the Adamson house, it used to not be there. Lifeguard tower was like in the middle of the beach. And so there was a lifeguard tower in the middle of the beach, kind of by um, where the main tower is now, but on the sand. It wasn't so far back. And then there was one at third point. And we had like a palapa that was cemented into, you know, it was like literally cemented and we had power that we ran from the bathrooms. We had like everything. And it was... it. It's like a real scene. It's a it scene, a not scene, just a search you know? and, and we would sleep on the beach there. We would hang all day. Like, we kind of were the lifeguards of the beach. Not actually, but, like, we kind of, like, ran that beach right there. Um, and yeah. now the main lifeguard tower's there. 
there's been a lot of changes on the beach itself with just like the way the creek has come out for a couple years they were doing this whole restoration project of the lagoon and it's questionable if it was helpful or not to be honest um i question it that said who knows really and um the way that the sand came out it really kind of undermined a lot of first point and the items in house and we almost lost a piece of the wall um the southern part of the wall you know and and so that kind of like they finally were like oh wait maybe we didn't do something good we're gonna redirect the water to third point where it naturally comes out so now the beach is starting to fill in but last summer was bananas i was like oh my gosh is the wall gonna go down is the you know and that wall is like so classic so iconic i mean that's really when people think of Malibu, if there's one element that really stands out visually. Totally. And and Malibu energetically, I mean, I really feel, and it's just kind of also like very factual, has always been a gathering place. It was a huge gathering place for the Chumash, which were the indigenous population of that whole, uh, you know, zone. The steelhead used to run down that river in through the lagoon out to the ocean and then back up. So if you think about that, you know, you had deer there. You still see deer on the hill. You know, you had deer there. You had steelhead. You had all these animals and this thriving utopic life i mean you know i bet they were surfing their canoes or their makeshifts out front too and getting perfect waves but it was really always this beacon that brought people together and um you know if it wasn't for the adamsons who the adamson house is right there there would be um a railroad that would have gone through malibu and we wouldn't know the pch as we know it today describe to me when you first started surfing there as a kid, you would drive from, you were living in Westlake at the time? Yeah, I was uh, living in Agora when I was Agora. a kid. Okay, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it's it's dry, probably pretty hot. You drive through the canyon and then you arrive at like First Point Malibu and you start seeing those waves. I mean, it must have really felt like a like a magical oasis when you were a kid, like in, when you got to surf there for the first time. It was the best, you know, driving through the canyon. I love Malibu Canyon. And there was that last turn, the first turn, the last big turn and the first turn that you see the ocean. And I always remember if you came around that corner and you saw white water in this little zone, then you knew it was going to be good. And you were just like, oh, get me there. And really driving through the canyons, I feel like the canyons are like this portal between like the beach and the valley. The valley was like concrete and it was like hot and it was just like the valley, you know, and then you'd like go through this like magical portal that was all beautiful and the lights coming through, you know, like full California sunshine, like all filtery and and backlit. And then you'd get to the beach and it was just like this utopic paradise. Just so so cool. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting just the, the contrast between, you know, Agora and Malibu as opposed to, you know, I grew up in Carpinteria, Santa Barbara. And as you drive up the coast, there's Rincon's potentially as iconic in certain ways. But there isn't that one moment where you go from almost desert to like, Donna, where you see it for the first time like that. I mean, you kind of drive up the coast and it's not quite as um, dramatic of, of a reveal, you know. That's it. Um, That's it. Totally. It's it's super special, especially growing up in the valley. I mean, it'd be like, you know, seven in the morning and 95 degrees and you're just like, get me to the beach, you know. And that's why we'd sleep there. We'd sleep in our cars. We'd sleep on the beach. We like we would just hang there and there was like no drama. I want to ask you to switch gears for a second. So you get to be, you know, basically the, the face of Roxy at a really interesting time in the surf industry. I mean, the the brand was strong. The industry was growing. Is there any key moments that really stand out or, you know, something that really kind of de- helps define that era? Like some of the trips you took? Did you have some amazing mentors that really defined that part of your life? 
Absolutely. I mean, A, just like having an opportunity to be one of the team members on one of the largest, you know, I mean, really, I think like what Roxy did was bring women surfing to where it's at right now um, by having the world's best people like Lisa Anderson, who was such an iconic female surfer, full stop. And then, um, you know, what they did with Linda Benson and myself and some people to create like the Roxy jams and to put longboarding women's longboarding on the center stage after that you know uh getting to work with people who are really i think true visionaries like randy hild and danielle beck and like you know they were really pushing the envelope um you know and bob mcknight and a lot of the people that like were the founders were just like go for it you know and they really went for it it's like women's surfing was thriving this was just like you know pre blue crush yeah And like all the energy was just like so exciting and it was such an awesome time because like everything was going up and we got to go on boat trips. I mean, the fact that I even went on one boat trip in my life, I like can't even, I'm like, wow, the fact that I got to do that was so amazing. Yeah. And then the fact that we got to see these kids, you know, like, you know, in the longboard world, girls like Kelia Moniz, we saw her and we like helped support her like through Roxy and everything. And now like, look, you know, she turned into this like amazing, you know, I mean, she always was an amazing surfer, but like really, you know, it was so awesome to be part of this whole momentum moving forward in such an awesome way. When it it was your time, Roxy really promoted you to a degree as like the face of female surfing. And, you know, from a, from a brand's perspective, it makes perfect sense. Like I've known you for a while. You're just like a beautiful person inside and out, like always have great vibes in and out of the water. And, you know, it makes sense why they would want to do that. But I guess I'm curious is like, was it difficult for you to hold that mantle? Was there ever any conflict of like having to perform, not just on the surfboard, but to kind of like embody this role and have this mantle of, you know, the face of female surfing? Is that something you were comfortable with or is it something you had to kind of adapt to and, and, and learn to be comfortable with? To be honest, I don't think I ever thought about it. Like I was just like excited to go surfing and I didn't want to blow it. You know, I was just like, I mean, surfing Malibu with all the guys that were like my idols too. And girls that were my idols, you know, I just didn't want to blow it in front of everybody. So I was just so focused on surfing. That's like all I really cared about. And I just like would surf, you know, I I like always say it all the time. I'd surf my face off. I would just surf, surf, surf. And, um, it was something that I just don't think I was like conscious of because I was so excited about surfing. Um, you and know, you, it just was getting, to, stuff. getting to be there and travel was really enough of a reward that you didn't feel the pressure of having to, to play that role or to, to be that no. face. That's it. You know, there was, I didn't feel like there was much pressure. I mean, I definitely think that every now and again, if there was like a contest or something, because I was never that competitive, that's where I would kind of like shut down a little bit because I was like, oh my gosh, if I don't like win, they're going to like not be stoked on me anymore. But then I like, didn't really care about winning. I just wanted to go travel and surf and it was just fun. And if the waves were good, cool. And if not, whatever. So I think like maybe that is where I felt tension or pressure. The, the competitive drive or the having to have a competitive Yeah, because that's just not my nature. You know, I just want to surf and have fun. So I think that that's where I, it definitely like hit some growing edges and brought up some stuff for me. That said, um, you know, I just remember like being on a photo shoot somewhere and we were like on a photo shoot, but I knew that the waves were good and I couldn't <laughs> go surfing. And I was just like, why am I here? Yeah. I need to go surfing. I was just like a, 
a frothing surf kid that just wanted to surf all day, every day. Speak to me about like, I mean, some of the experiences and the camaraderie on some of those boat trips must have been really amazing. I mean, do, do you feel like, do you have a book in you, do you think? I mean, is there some, some stories that you have tucked away that... I definitely have a book in me. Um, I probably have a couple books. Like I've, you know, and it was before cell phones. It was before Instagram, before social media. People were still like, you know, Sonny Miller, Jeff Hornbaker, they were shooting film. Sonny was like shooting, you know, 35 millimeter film in the water. Like imagine the housing that's great. And he would make his own housings. It's like, I feel so grateful that I got to grow up at a time and, and really, you know, see some of those legends in action, shooting film. And really like, it was such like, I feel like, um, co-creation, you know, because you had these moments and then they had these moments and like everything had to work, you know, it was always a joke like, oh yeah, they're always going to miss your best wave because they're probably like changing the film or like reloading or like winding or something like that. And that was really cool because it felt really romantic and you'd be out in the middle of nowhere for weeks on end and there was no communicating with anybody except for the people that you were with. So the stories that we'd all share with each other and hear from each other and like it was just like feel like really, you know, there was like a lot of romance just in the time we spent together and the opportunity to just really be with each other and be with the stars and be with like silence and be with yourself. It was really special. So I'm curious about the money aspect of things. Obviously you don't have to go into specifics, but like looking back on, on what you made and what some of the other people were making, does it seem almost quaint compared to what some of you would go on to make later in your career or looking back on that era? Does it almost seem surprising or shocking that there were the budgets that there were considering the direness of the surf industry today? You know, I think that I, being like a longboarder, um, and being a woman, to be honest, like there was like, you know, obviously like the male shortboarders made the most. And then somebody like Joel, probably, I don't ever know what he made, but he probably was, you know, up there for the longboarding, but still, I don't think he made as much as some of the girls that were the top of the top in the shortboard world. But really, there was only a handful of girls that were really making a living at it. And then I was like a lucky one, I feel like, you know, for being a woman and being a longboarder, I was making enough to get by. It wasn't by any means anything extravagant. Um, It was like I could pay my bills and live like a chill life. And I was always on the road anyway, so I wasn't really spending that much money. And there was probably like two or three years that like... I had worked really hard and I was like designing collections and like helping with ad campaigns and doing stuff that like I was making like, you know, like a significant, yeah, yeah, I was making a living, but it wasn't anything like extravagant compared to some of what the girls were making, um, that were like the top of the top, the world champion shortboarders and stuff like that. Um, and it definitely wasn't anything parallel to what the men were making at that time. And, but do you feel that that path is still an option for, for young women today, or has there just been a, a sea change in the industry? You know, I really think that it was an option. And I think that what we did was we created an option for more women. You know, I was the only female longboarder at that time making a living. One. 
you know, and then there was a couple girls that I think I like help open up the pathway, just like Lisa did for the for the women's shortboard crew. I think like I'm not trying to be like I'm like Lisa, but I think like you know, oh, no, everybody paves a path and plays their role for the next generation. You know, totally, like, and I think like I was in a position and you know working with Roxy and working with Swatch at a time, and like we created these contests that were women's longboard contests, and they created a stage for the women to work towards. So then all of a sudden, all these like amazing girl surfers started coming out of the woodworks that were like ripping on longboards. And I think a lot of the other companies, you know, started seeing that and they're like, oh, we're going to pay these people. So then there was like, you know, it started to open up and there was a couple more girls making some money, you know, like Jen Smith. She was a world champ. She rode for Billabong and then Patagonia got Belinda Bags and she started making a little bit of money. And now there's girls like Victoria and Chloe and Kalia and like all these girls at Honolulu, you know, Kalise. But they all came, you know, those kids are like less than half my age. Yeah. You know, I think Kalise is like 15 years old. I'm like 38. So like they came, you know, we help open up the path for them. And really like Kalia was probably like that second school of kids that started to make some more money. And then there was like more girls in the longboard than Victoria and Chloe Calmon and then Honolulu. Like, you know, so I think it really opened up the space for that to happen. It's, it's actually, it's kind of ironic that, you know, you, you were able to open up those doors and you were maybe one of the first female longboarders to kind of start being able to make a living. And then, you know, you look at the state of the surf industry today, like if you're like a second tier pro shortboarder, like pickings are pretty slim, you know, in terms of yeah. trying to be able to make a living at it. Whereas I feel like women have an amazing opportunity right now just because if you're, you know, young and talented and telegenic and, you know, brandable, there's, there's so many more products that. Uh, you know, a, a female surfer has an opportunity to, you know, to promote whether, you know, whether it's beauty products or surf related products or, you know, whatever. And I think that's the, the irony of, you know, the, the men in most industries making more than the women. And I feel like it's almost starting to intersect to a degree. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think there's just like a lot of movement forward and a lot more equality coming to the center stage than ever before um, on so many different platforms. Surfing being obviously one of them. And we have the big wave surfing now and all this other stuff. And and really, you know, when we were the kids, a company like Roxy was really the company that was selling all the stuff. And we were kind of paying the salaries of the Quicksilver guys. Yeah. Really, I mean, women just buy more things generally. You know, guys buy their pair of board shorts and their shirt and they're like stoked, you know? That's what I'm saying. There's just a lot more products to be able to, you know, to, to brand off of like a really talented, beautiful face, you know? Totally. And and the thing is, that was what was happening then, but we were paying their salaries where now it's like different kind of budgets and they're allocated. So I think that's also part of it. And obviously there's just so much movement towards equality in like every which way, you know, which is amazing. But like, really, I think that like, it's like, okay, cool. Like we knew that we were paying all those bills and now they're, you know, they're coming back the other way. So I think yeah. it's awesome. And, and I, I think it's really exciting for the girls. It makes me so excited. And I think too, even just having like, even though I'm not a competitive person, part of the intention with helping those contests start to happen was really to give a stage for the women to, to be and work towards something, you know? And I think that also helped open up the market too, because people were like, wow, there's so many girls that surf so well, you know, that now they have a stage, like let's start to pick them up and like make something happen. And, and it's just so cool. Like I watch the girls surf now and I'm just like, yes, you know, I was at Sano the other day and I was like, everybody was ripping. It made me yeah. so pumped. No, it's just, it's so ironic because for a, a non-competitive male shortboard surfer, the, the 
career paths are becoming smaller and smaller. And I mean, you can speak on this, like as a talented young female surfer, not even necessarily competitive, like there seems to a lot to be a lot of opportunities opening up, whether it's like I said, beauty products or endemic surf related products or Audi or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's just because like the lifestyle is what brings a lot of energy towards surfing, you know, which is why like a place like Rockaway, you know, going back to the lifestyle and why a place like Malibu back in the fifties with Gidget, it was a lifestyle that she was selling. Like, you know, Kathy was like not the best surfer on the beach by any means. She wasn't competing, but she was living this lifestyle that people fantasized about. And, you know, a lot of people don't fantasize about putting on a jersey and going and surfing like the craziest waves in the world. You know, they fantasize about like catching a couple fun waves on a longboard out at San Onofre and like barbecuing with friends and hanging on the beach and watching the sunset and like really that lifestyle. Yeah. And even, I mean, the sacrifices that you have to make in order to be able to put on that jersey and surf in those elite conditions, you know, like grinding it out on the QS. And, you know, it's a very, it's it's, it's a very specific career path. Very specific. And, and two, that was like the only career path before where now there's more career paths. And I think that like, that's where, you know, there's like this little bit of like an adjustment period that we're seeing, you know, with some of the shortboard, what, what you're talking about, like those, you know, kind of second tier, like they're amazing surfers. They're fantastic. It's like crazy. I wish it like that. That's, that's the key is it's not enough to just be an amazing surfer anymore. It's not enough, you know, and there's this whole other lifestyle aspect. Like, I think it was Rob Machado that was really one of the first free surfers in the modern era of surfing. And he opened up a pathway for other amazing, you know, male shortboarders to be able to follow that more path, you know, and like. Yeah, he's like, you know, almost won a world champion. He was like yeah. right there, you know, and he went another way and he really opened up a pathway and people were like, wait, like he's doing it. Gosh, people like love him. I mean, I love him. He's one of my favorite surfers. But so like, great. you know, it's like it just opened up a different pathway. And it's almost like, you know, to, to really open it up and the brands that seem to be doing the best are opening it up to supporting people that um, aren't you know, yeah, they have the best like at the competition and they also have the best at doing the free surfing because then they're really speaking to everybody. Um, so um, one of the themes that I always really love talking about on this podcast is the, the theme of, of second acts. And I think any athlete that performs on an elite level is acutely aware that the clock is ticking and then they're not going to be able to do this forever. So, I mean, you launched Cassia Surf a couple years ago. Was that part of your plan all along or how did, how did that develop? Like. Is that something that you always kind of had in mind as something that was on the horizon? You know, it's so interesting. Um, Not really. I mean, people would always be like, oh, you should do your own company. And I was designing a lot for Roxy. I was even helping them with their ads. I was shooting some of their ad campaigns toward the end of my, my, you know, run with them. And I was just like, you know, a part of so many of the aspects of what it takes to create a brand that it just kind of came time. And, and to be honest, I was just like, felt like I got to a place where I couldn't go anymore. And they were like, Hey, let's, you know, do another contract. And I was like, but they were going through some internal changes and they were kind of keeping any of the athletes from doing their own companies and, or like doing their own like capsule collections. They were like, Oh, yeah. we're not doing that anymore. I'm like, why do you think that was? I don't really know. They had like a changing of the guard. They got like a new president. I never even met the guy, to be honest. Right when he came in, I was on my way out. Um, And that's when I was just like, you know what? Like, I love surfing and I'm always going to be a surfer. 
And, and really, you know, I, I feel like what's inspiring me and what's keeping me going and what's pushing me and is a growing edge for me is actually like designing stuff. I love it. Well, with your company, are you more involved on the design side than the business side or are they equal or do you, is there one, if you had an opportunity to only do one, I mean, do you enjoy the business side of it or would you prefer just to? No, I mean, I do everything from shipping orders to answer the phone calls for customer service to design everything yeah. to like everything, you know? So to be honest, like I do everything and it's a lot because I don't get as much time to surf and I love the creative aspect of it and I would love to bring in people to run the business part of it so I could just be creative and we could actually like inflate the company but I'm kind of like do all of it and it's it's exhausting and I am grateful for the opportunity and it's really you know some people go to business school I like created a business and I've been in school with it you know. Were there any lessons that you learned from surfing that have helped inform how you run your company or a, or any lessons you learned from surfing that help inform how you run a female owned company? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think it's just like following your instincts is huge. Having like resilience, like paddling back out after you get beat back to shore is huge. You know, after you like really yeah. eat it, getting back up and having another run, you know, and, and just like the creativity, you know, surfing, you don't really know where you're going. You just take off on a wave and you just kind of flow with it with running a business. It's the same thing. I'm just like going with something that I feel and I don't really know where I'm going. I'm just like flowing with it. And some people are like looking at bottom lines and doing all this stuff. Like that's not how I do it. I kind of like have created this company. Like I surf, I'm like, I really love that. I'm going to do this. And I've been grateful to do collaborations with other amazing brands and, you know, to be able to grow and evolve. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly learning what I could have done better or I should have done differently. And I think it's awesome, you know? And I also, yeah. You can see, you can almost make the, make the analogy that like, you know, the market force of the company is like, it's riding a wave. And when you take off on a wave, you're not really sure what's going to happen, where it's going to lead how the ride's going to go. And I think that's kind of helped you in your perspective of being able to let go in business and not be as, you know, regimented of what you're trying to achieve for the next quarter or whatever. Yeah. Like I don't even, I don't think I've ever thought about quarters. I'm like, I'm going to make a collection and sell it and I'm going to do this and sell it. And I, I really kind of speak from my heart about everything that we talk about, you know, and really, try to empower people and inspire other women because the ocean and surfing has empowered and inspired me. Like I didn't know what I was going to do when I was a little kid. I didn't think I was ever going to be a pro surfer. I just started doing something, you know, fanatically because I loved it. And that's kind of like when I chose to leave Roxy and start my own company, everybody told me I was crazy. Just kind of like all my friends at school are like, you're never going to be a surfer, whatever, you're crazy. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to graduate high school and buy a car and go like travel around Australia and live in it for a while. So you, you straight up walked away from a, from a contract re-up to do this, to do this venture? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. It was an interesting choice, you know? Um, and, um, and yeah, my parents, my manager at the time, everybody was like, dude, really? And I'm like, whatever. Like I've done that for 15 years. I know what that, I, it's not going to go anywhere new or different or inspiring. And the new people were coming in and like, I really felt like, um, 
uh, a lot of the energy, a lot of the people that I loved working with that were really kind of like pillars um, in the company were really all starting to leave and like go other places. And it just, the energy was gone, you and know? What have been some of the biggest obstacles you've had to overcome being like a female business owner in that space? Is that is that an issue? Have you come into any obstacles or conflicts? I mean, I think just being like a business owner is intense, you period. know, and yeah. a period, you know, I think that sometimes there like is a little bit. And I think that that shifting or like sometimes even with like investment money and stuff like that, like a lot of kind of like, like anything, you know, sometimes with like starting a company, there's it can be a little bit of a boys club, like, Oh, like my bro's doing this, let's all invest, you know, where there's not really that same pool of money for, for the women as much. And there's starting to be more and more in that. So I just did it solely on my own, you know, like funded it myself, did everything myself, figured it out, called all the factories, like, like figured it out and still figuring it out every day. So it's been a really cool opportunity and lesson in life. And I'm, I'm grateful I did it. You know, it definitely taught me so much and continues to. Oh, I bet. And what's, what's 2.0 for the company? Are you, do you have any big plans to move forward in terms of, are you trying to branch outside of, of, just apparel or, or, or wetsuits make it a larger brand? Or are you, you kind of happy just... It seems like there's this notion in business that you always have to be growing. Or it's like, can't you just have something that's successful and be happy with that? I mean, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I really think that, you know, for me, it's not about growing. And it's definitely not about growing by the standards that traditionally things would grow by. Because I think that those standards are what created to the demise of the world. That said, um, you know, so I think it's really just like sitting and pausing and listening and being like available for what's to come. And I think right now I'm kind of like pausing and watching and I chose not to make another collection. I've been working towards like collaborations with other brands to learn and to open up in different ways from that space. Um, and I'm in the process of kind of inviting in some new energy to see if we could start to expand and open into different avenues that would be really conscious and mindful and supportive of um, both the business itself and also supportive of the earth the and world, inspiring yeah. And, yeah. and the world. So it's like... I just don't want to make things. The world doesn't need any more stuff. So trying to like make a business grow at the expense of like our earth is nothing I care about, you know? So I'm just learning and and seeing where it goes. and, And like I said, inviting in new energy and kind of like, I think that, you know, there's a lot of transformation that's available. And I think that some of the reasons that I started it in the first place were to be more mindful and to focus on solutions rather than creating more issues. And I think that now people are like really ready to speak that language where before maybe sometimes people would be like, well, like, but what's the bottom line though? You know? And I'm like, well, I'm not thinking about that at all, actually. Like I'm trying to just, you know, do this. And so now there's more space for like a conversation and the type of conversation I want to have. So it's awesome. And I, I really, you know, pay attention to brands like Patagonia who've been doing it that way since the beginning, Yeah, you know, and really just kind of stuck to their guns and like, that's what I want to do. It's like, I also think there's enough time that I've like had the company going on my own and really like, you know, it's been my voice that now it's really kind of built off of that. And if I am to bring in other people, it's not going to dilute the reason that I started it in the first place. There's a pretty solid inertia of a mission statement that's in place that you can just bring some new blood and it won't kind of change the course of what you set out to do. 
That's the thing. That's the thing. We have enough of a groove, you know, we've dug enough of a groove and like also people have like their ears and, and minds and hearts more open to, um, what else is possible. And I think it's constantly figuring it out every day, to be honest. So cool. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan. I love what you do. <laughs> Thanks so much. Man. Um, well, so also switching gears kind of related. So you recently went on a trip with, with Rob Machado to, uh, Ikea to this like design headquarters for like a collab that you might be working on. Is that, is that top secret? Cause I, I heard some feedback. I heard it was like this crazy Willy Wonka like design manufacturing materials factory and it was it was a pretty spectacular trip like can you can you give any details on that so I don't know how much I can talk about it but it's exciting and it was also really inspiring because a company like Ikea out of Sweden they created that company out of necessity and really being super you know hey like let's be really smart about what we make and how we make it effective you know um is that, like is it out of efficiency do, or out of Efficiency and I think necessity, really, you know, it was it came out of like a huge depression in Sweden and they built this company. So people didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of space. They needed something to do multiple things and they needed it to be cost effective and they also needed it to be good quality, you know? So I really, really, really think that like Ikea, to be honest, like it, for such a huge company, they're probably one of the biggest global ba- brands. He's period. like the owner. He's one of the top five richest people in the world. Like it's massive. Yeah, it's massive. And like they did it out of like integrity. Like the whole foundation of the company has been from integrity and making sure that people are getting what they need, what they want at a good, affordable price. And it's going to last since the beginning. And so and they're still doing it that way. It's like they're always going back to how can we make this like efficiently? How can we make this as eco-conscious as possible? How can we make this as like effective as possible and also affordable for people? When it comes to like sustainability as a brand of that size, they're so far ahead of the curve. It's amazing. Well, so, to so see. visiting the factory, you really got a sense of, of uh, a distinct like ethos for the company and like what they're trying to accomplish and huge, like massive and what they're trying to accomplish, what they're already intending to accomplish and what they have accomplished on a sustainability level. And they're not even talking about it because they're like, yeah, well, this is how we've always done things. Yeah. So it's pretty yeah. wild, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, people talk about greenwashing or using something as like a marketing tool, like they've just done it. And it's almost like they don't even talk about it because they've just done it. And it's like, yeah. man, I wish you guys would talk about this a little bit more because like, you know, so it's it was really inspiring. I'm super excited to be um, invited to be a part of that project. And I'm really excited for what we can bring out there. Super excited to hear details when the time is right. I mean, one one story that I did here, which you could probably speak on because that doesn't sound like it's confidential, but um, my friend Ryan Bucci, who went on the trip with you, is telling me that you, they took you on this this kind of secret dinner party or something, and you went oh, to this yeah. like the way he described it. It was like that you didn't nobody knew where you were going. You went to this like castle, but there was people that were in like playing roles from way back when there's, and and then also it was like haunted and ghost. It sounded to me that it was like a cross between like dinner at medieval night's restaurant, a scene from eyes wide shut and like a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> it was what, totally what, like what, that. What went down? What was that all about? It was wild. It was like singing. And like, we went on this tour of this place and it was definitely haunted. They even talked about it. And like, it was like, kind of, and we're in the middle of nowhere. So it was like super kind of spooky 
spooky. But then just the house itself was so old. I mean, way older than this whole country, you know, like by a lot. That's and such a, that's so funny. it was so wild. It was a really cool, super trippy night. And just like all the stories through each room and like the house was just like the way it was left. So that was kind of spooky too. And then, yeah. you know, we all kind of got spooked out in this one area and the the whole house had like all these weird stories about like how everybody had died. Like, you know, the daughter died and then this person and like, and they, all their photos were everywhere, like looking at you and you're just like, Oh my gosh. Like, it's just funny that that that's the place that the brand thought was interesting to take you guys as like a, as a, as a treat, as a thank you or as a, it was cool. Yeah. And it was also about like the old style, you know, it's like the hammer is also the measuring stick, which is also like this thing. And like, you saw it in action and you're like, Whoa, this is, oh, this is like a pry thing and a hammer and a measuring stick like it's and everything was like multifunctional in the space so that's that sense of like of efficiency and conservation has been part of the the brand or maybe part of swedish culture since way back when i think so i think part of not only the brand but part of swedish culture since way back when you know um i think that it was just hard you know in sweden back then i mean it was hard in a lot of places but they had like a famine and it's cold and there's not much money and it's a little country you know it's like all those things you're just like whoa stuff was wild and they just had to be smart that sounds like such a great trip it was cool it was really inspiring i'm like really excited about what's going to happen and come out All right, cool. I'm excited to hear. Um, So one thing we always like to do, we like to end this podcast and give a guest an opportunity to, you know, we've we've talked about you and and what you've been working on, but I always like to give guests an opportunity to plug something that they've been inspired by that's that's, um, maybe not getting enough attention, whether it's like a movie or a book or an artist or, you know, a a, a TV show. Like, is there something that you found really inspiring lately that you want to like give a shout out to? Man, I'm finding so many things so inspiring every day, you know? I think that, um, you know, film-wise, the movie Honeyland is really awesome. It's about the last wild beekeeper, and I think it's incredible. Um, Where is that set? Macedonia, and it's a documentary. And it's on this woman that these uh, these directors met in the farmer's market or whatever, you know, like the village market because she was known to have the best honey. And she just lives in harmony with the bees and harmony with the land. And like her whole thing throughout the whole film is just like, hey, half for me, half for you. Like never take more than you need. Always give back at least at least what you take or more. You know, and I think that that just like simple thing, if everybody could be that way, we'd all be in a lot better place, I think, as humanity. So I think it's like a simple film. It's a beautiful film and it's a documentary and it's just really touching and really um, beautiful. So I would say if you want a film, obviously, there's a lot of people spending time inside. That's a fantastic film. Uh, So if you've burned through uh, Tiger King and uh, all the other things from March and April of this of this covid cycle, um, that's a new one. It's a good one to watch. And then I think, you know, I think it's just been really awesome. And I just kind of want to honor everybody, um, you know, that's moving forward. You know, there's an awesome project, uh, the women from intersectional environmentalists that are doing like so much work around just like the environment and how we can all be just so mindful. And like they have great feed and my friend Bonnie just did a podcast with them this morning and it was awesome. So intersectional environmentalists, they have an Instagram account. That's really awesome. The ladies at future earth, 
um, are really giving some good information. And I just think like the whole movement and bringing people to more um, equal states in all ways, you know, what's going on with, um, you know, the Black Lives Matters movement and really just bringing people together and like kind of like we have this really amazing opportunity to um, to really reset the fa- to keep this conversation. Yeah, going. but to reset the foundation of this country. It's like, you know, like, like, why did we come here? Like, why is America here? Because, you know, it, British rule was like keeping people from having their own freedom. And it was like ruling. Like, if you take a minute and read the Declaration of Independence, read it. Because, like, have you read it? Uh I guess maybe in high school. I, totally. I was try, there was like that moment. Of, do I do I do I do I fake no, it right no, now? No, no I'm not no, going to. No, I have it not. Now no. and like read the words, and it's really interesting because exactly why this country was founded is what we're all fighting for: freedom for all and equality for all. And it just was like almost there, and it wasn't done right. So I really feel like we have this opportunity to go back and and to do it right. And, and that's why all yeah. this stuff is coming up right now. You know, civil rights, like the fact that like we don't even, you know, like all this stuff that like it, it has an opportunity to be reset. So I think it's really an interesting time. I'm grateful to be alive and I'm hopeful. And it's just about like listening to each other and communicating and helping each other out as humans. And also to me personally, I feel like it's a really awesome time for like humanity to come together and to see that we're all equal, you know? And yeah, so that's something I want to call out. (laughs) Those are amazing. Those are amazing parting words. And, um, well, just thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. I can't wait until we can see each other in person. Um, but hopefully that'll be soon. And, uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks for taking time out. Dude. Thank you so much, Justin. You rule. I love your new book, by the way. Congratulations on that. It was so cool to see like so many years and dedication come through and just like, it's beautiful. So yeah, I love COVID, it. COVID kind of put a little bit of a kink in, in, in the, the book tour, but hopefully, um, maybe sometime in the fall or next year we'll, we'll resume that. So I got some cool events planned. So totally, man, that's awesome. And like, and more than anything, people should just get the book cause it's dope and it's a great time to sit at home and read a book or (laughs) look at a book of beautiful pictures you know it's dope it's super dope i'm stoked for you man appreciate it i'm glad thanks for having me i'm glad you i'm glad you're a part of it i'm glad you're part of the podcast and uh it's always great talking to you i'll see you soon dude sounds groovy thanks you guys later this episode of the plug was produced by bucci with audio engineering and original music by peter buckingham thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in If you like this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations.